No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. Okay. We're going to take, it's, this is not going to be a long teaching today. It's just something I put together kind of quickly this afternoon. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, Alice will be in again. She's going to be doing a review of the alphabet that she had been doing. Then we'll take a two week break and then we'll, she'll jump back into the new part of the alphabet. So if you can bear with me for one more week, you'll be rid of me for a couple of weeks. I was thinking today that it's almost that wonderful time of the year, isn't it? Everybody know what I'm talking about? There you go. Exactly. It's almost Christmas time, and how many people are excited about it? So I thought we could, at first I thought, well, what we'll do is we'll go over Christmas. And I started thinking something we've done over and over and over, and every one of you can probably repeat everything there is to know about Christmas as far as Mithraism, all the paganism that's involved in it. So I thought, well, why don't we start talking about how you should talk to someone that asking you about Christmas. I thought, okay, that would probably be better because I've discovered that as much fun as it can be to really tear somebody up when it comes to Christmas, and let's be honest, we all know we got that little temptation inside of us, and it doesn't do a whole lot of good. It's not very constructive. So what we have to do is do it in a way of love. I've also discovered that if you try to talk to someone that still celebrates Christmas, if you try to talk to, talk to them about Christmas, during the Christmas season, you're going to get nowhere. So it's best to try to avoid it as much as possible. Now, we all know one of the questions you're going to get as soon as they find out you don't do Christmas. You don't love Jesus. Who's heard that before? I've heard that one. I was told I was going to hell because I didn't keep Christmas. I'm serious, I did. I had a lady tell me that. Because I didn't keep Christmas, I was going to hell. So I started thinking... Soon as you tell somebody you don't keep Christmas, they're going to ask you, what do you believe? And you're going to start talking about it. And the first thing they're going to start saying is, you're trying to keep that old law. Why do you keep the law? That law's done away with, right? That's what we all, who's heard that before? That law's for the Jews or it's been done away with. So I thought we'll start, we'll go over just a little bit today and then we'll pick back up after Alice takes her review and we'll pick up a few more things. So I, I titled this teaching, Handling Church Objections. Are Christians under the law? The point of disagreement is whether or not Christians are still under Moses' law. I think we should underline that and highlight that word, Moses' law, because it's not Moses' law. Whose law is it? It's God's law. Moses just so happened to be the one that told us about it. Must Christians keep the commandments to be in the right relationship with God, or does the new covenant offer a different, better, more glorious way for Christians to relate to God? There we go. Covenant theology. Who's heard of covenant theology before? If you anything, if you had any much doing in the church, you probably heard covenant theology. It says that Christians are under the law, although they generally assert that the law must be adapted for today's culture. Who's heard that before? The law has adapted. It's changed. It's modified. That that word adapted right there may be one of the most dangerous words in the English language. Who's heard the saying before, the pen is mightier than the sword? True words have never been spoken. You can cause a lot of damage with a war, but look what you can cause with words. You use the word adapted, it sounds better, don't it, than changed. Doesn't sound quite as bad. Let me give you a good example. 
Most of us, if not every one of us in here, I'd say every one of us, are pro-life, are we not? We don't believe abortion is right in any way, shape, or form. We call ourselves pro-life. But what do people in society call us? Anti-choice. Which sounds better? If you're pro-life, you sound like you're protecting life, don't you? If you're anti-choice, you're keeping someone from making a choice. You're holding somebody down. You see the danger of words now? That's why we have to be careful when we use words like adapted. Or if we use, like I was told one time, God doesn't change. He just modifies. I'm not an English scholar, but I think modify means change, doesn't it? What I thought. Dispensational theology. Now, I'm sure every one of us have heard that being here in the South. Dispensational theology says that while the law does contain moral principles, there is no command in the New Testament which obligates Christians to live under Old Testament law. Anybody have a problem with that right there? I have a huge problem because there is one, isn't there? If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. In fact, they teach that the New Testament clearly states that we are not under the law, but we're under grace, and they misuse Romans 6.14 to do that. So this is what the church teaches us today. Is that the truth? Let's see how that phrase, under the law, can be explained. And I'll be honest with you, for years I struggled, even after I come out of the church, I struggled with that phrase, under the law. Because I couldn't get through my mind what it truly meant. This is one of the most famous passages people use to tell us that we're no longer under the law. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, in all fairness, this does sound as if Paul is telling us that we no longer have to keep the law. If you read it, just those verses together, don't keep it in context. Does it not sound like it says the law was gone? It's easily to misinterpret that. So let's cut them a little bit of slack. Let's try not to be too hard on those who still hold that belief. Now let's read this passage from a slightly different perspective. We're going to use the complete Jewish Bible. And I highly recommend reading different versions because sometimes a different version phrases the same thing in a different way and it clicked for you. And this is what done it for me. What I'm saying, verse 1 of Galatians chapter 4, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a minor, he is no different from a slave, even though he is the legal owner of the estate. Rather, he is subject to guardians and caretakers until the time previously set by his father. So it is with us, when we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. But when the appointed time arrived, God sent forth his son. He was born from a woman, born into a culture in which legalistic perversion of the Torah was the norm, so that he might redeem those in subje subjection to this legalism and thus enable us to be made God's son. It's a whole different ballgame now, isn't it? See what it does when you take it and you keep it in context? It's not under the law. It's a culture which legalistic perversion of the Torah was the norm. In other words, when Yeshua was born, perverting of the Torah was the norm. 
It's not the law that was the problem. It was the people's interpretation that was at issue. Paul never, not once in any of his writings or his life, had a problem with the law. What he had a problem was with, with the way the law was being misused. That was Paul's whole reason for writing Galatians. It wasn't to do away with the law. It was simply to teach that the law was being misused. That was the norm in that day and time. That the, the theory was that in order to be saved, you had to, A, accept Yeshua, and you had to keep the law. If you didn't do both those things, you were not saved. Now, we know that's not true, and that's not what we teach, but that's what, the, in that day and time, the mentality was. The assumption today is that the Pharisees had the law correctly interpreted. The church today will beat up on the Pharisees and say they were proud and terrible, hard people, but you never hear the church say that the Pharisees had interpreted the law incorrectly. The church has the thought that the, that the Pharisees kept the law as it was as it was written. The trick is to find the law's correct interpretation and see if it should apply to us today. When you discover the true meaning of the law, then you will easily see that it's relevant for us today. So that's the first thing you got to do is explain to people that Paul did not have a problem with the law itself. What Paul's problem was, was how people used the law. That's what you have to get across. Now, I'll go ahead and forewarn you, when you talk to people, the vast, overwhelming majority of people will not get this. Have you ever run into that problem? I think most of us have. But you've got to keep going. Our job is not necessarily to harvest. What's our job? It's to plant seeds. And sometimes we have to plant seeds in that hard, hard ground, and we don't see any results right now. But we have a very important job to do, and if we don't plant the seed now, when harvest time comes, there won't be a crop. Kind of like if you think, if you're building a house, everybody's got their job, don't they? If the plumber tries to put the roof on, what's going to happen? You're not going to have a roof, you're not going to have plumbing. Everybody has to do their job in order for the house to come together. And that's what this is. We have to do our job so that the house can come together. It's tough sometimes, but that's what we have to do. All right, let's move on to one of my favorite parts. It's the allegory of Sarah and Hagar. We're going to try to find a proper understanding. This story of Sarah and Hagar has always fascinated me. And I never could get around this one either. This one always gave me trouble too. A few misunderstandings we've inherited need to be cleared up. Let's go ahead and read the passage in Galatians that speaks of Sarah and Hagar. Galatians 4.21 Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Verse 24 This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, 
for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. We need a definition of a word, the word context. The general series or composition of discourse, more particularly the parts of a discourse which proceed or pre, excuse me, precede or follow the sentence quoted. Basically, context means understand what the guy wrote it about. Now, I don't know how else to put it. Keep it in its proper context. The sense of a passage of scripture is often illustrated by the context. In other words, you need to know what the chapter, verses, and the book you're reading are talking about. I think that's pretty common sense, isn't it? If you don't know what the book's talking about, you really can't take part of it out of the middle and try to explain it to somebody. So if you don't read it from the beginning and understand why the author wrote the book, you really can't explain it very well. Another question, what is an allegory? We've heard that term before, but what is an allegory? A figurative sentence or discourse in which the principal subject is described by another subject resembling in its properties and circumstances. The principal subject is thus kept out of view, and we are left to collect the intentions of the writer or speaker by the resemblance of the secondary to the primary subject. In other words, it's like an illustration, telling one story to describe another one. An allegory is in words that hieroglyphics are in painting. We have a fine example of an allegory in the 80th Psalm in which God's chosen people are represented by a vineyard. Now, obviously, God's chosen people aren't a vineyard, but God uses a vineyard to describe them. The distinction in Scripture between a parable and an allegory is said to be that a parable is supposed is a supposed history and an allegory a figurative description of real fact. An allegory is called a continued metaphor. If you don't know what a word means, what should you do? Look it up. Okay, we under, we've already talked about why Paul wrote, wrote the book of Galatians. But here's in Paul's own words, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, <clears throat> which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of the Messiah. Now we understand and we know why Paul wrote this book. Let's use this knowledge and see if we can understand chapter 4 better. So we know what Paul wrote it for. People were perverting the Torah. They were saying that the Torah was... Uh, you needed to keep Torah in order to be saved. First thing we have to do before we jump in that is identify the characters in this story and what the modern-day church teaches that they represent and then what they actually mean. Once I figured this part out, Sarah and Hagar really started making sense at that point. This is what the church teaches. The church teaches that Sarah equals salvation by grace. They say Hagar represents the law. They say Isaac is also salvation by grace, and Ishmael represents the law. That's the teaching that we were given for years and years and years. So is this correct? And how do you answer someone who tries to teach you this? Here's what these people actually represent. Sarah equals salvation the way God provided. Hagar represents trying to obtain salvation by any other way than the way God provided. That can be any way, not necessarily just using Torah, any possible way. Isaac, salvation by the promised one, and Ishmael represents trying to one-up God and obtain salvation by man's way. Let's read the story. I think that's the best thing to do instead of listening to me talk. If we just read the story, things make better sense. 
So let's jump to Genesis chapter 16, verse 1 through 6. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Verse 3, After Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Canaan, excuse me, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that he had conceived, she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Okay, basically, let's just sum this story up. God made Abram a promise many, many years ago that he and Sarah would have a child, and that this child would be the promised child. Years and years and decades passed, still no child. Abram's almost 100, Sarah's pushing 90. Still no child. She's not exactly at childbearing years anymore. So what do they start thinking? They think, uh-oh, we've made a mistake. Uh, it, the promise is to Abram, it's not to Sarah. So we have to do something to help God along. That's when we get in trouble, when we decide we need to help God along. That always goes off the rails. So what happens? Sarah said, Abram, I've got this handmaiden. You go into her, you have a child with her, and that'll be the promised son, because it's not about me. Well, they got away from God, and they didn't listen, and look at the problems they caused. They brought about Ishmael, which causes all kinds of problems even today, because Ishmael's descendants, who are they? The Arabs today. Trying to get the promise other than the way God has laid out is what always gets us into trouble. If we could ever get it through our fixed skulls, that we need to shut up and obey God, our life would be so much easier, wouldn't it? It's like when you're at work and your boss tells you to do something that's absolutely the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. How many of you have experienced that before? Every one of us have at some point in time. You're thinking to yourself, I do not want to do this. That is stupid. I'm not going to do it. And you fight against it. You talk about it. It drives you crazy. What good does that accomplish? Because at the end of the day, the boss is still the boss, and you've got to do what he said, right? How much easier does life get when you say, you know what? I'm going to do it the way the boss says, and let what happens happen. Life gets a whole lot much easier when you do that at work, but even better when you start doing that with God. When you realize that God's the boss, and if you just shut up and do what he says, then do it. If he tells you to jump up and down on your left foot every other Thursday, start jumping on every other Thursday. Things will be better if you do that. Dispensational theology says that while the law does not contain moral does contain moral principles, there is no command in the New Testament which obligates Christians to live under Old Testament law. In fact, the New Testament clearly states that we are not under the law, but under grace. For sin shall not be a master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This verse is used in order to get out of obeying God's commandments. It can be difficult for people to get their minds around. Let's look at this from a different angle. 
Romans 6, 14 from the New American Standard, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Now, once again, when you just read that verse, it sounds like you don't have to keep the law. Let's be honest, that's what it sounds like. Read it from another version and see what it says. For sin will not have authority over you because you are not under legalism, but you're under grace. Kind of puts a different perspective on it again, doesn't it? Looking at Scripture from different angles can give you a completely different perspective. It's very important to question everything you've ever been taught. This all comes back to the Peshat level. You must understand what the writer is saying. If you don't, you will get confused and false doctrines will creep in. I know that's been short, but that's pretty much what I've got for today. I just want to leave you with saying this time of year is tough on us. We all know that. Now's the time to start studying before you start getting those questions. Brush up on all the basics that we kind of forget, you know, work. We just got through with Sukkot and we're all tired from that. Everything's going on. We kind of forget. Just, you know, these questions are coming from our family, from our coworkers. Start brushing up on your basics so that you can answer these questions because you never know who's going to listen. It's always the ones that you don't think will listen are the ones that listen. The ones you think are going to get it nine times out of ten are the ones that will never listen. So you don't know. It's not your decision to say he's going to get it, she's not. You need to, to be able to talk about this stuff to everybody you know. Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before.